Anyway, it's great to be with you this morning. Good morning, my name's Becky, um, and I want to affirm and tell you it's true, everything Paul said about himself uh, earlier. He is very much in his head, very much a uh, um, not feely type person, which is the opposite of me. So I always tell this story wherever we go now because I just think, because I love, I love seeing people's reactions is partly that. But it's just like we can be watching something together um, in the evening, watching a show. Um, I'm a big K-drama fan. I like to drop that in wherever I go as well. Um, but really great dramas. So I will be watching something and I'll be crying and he'll go, oh, what's the matter? Because he thinks, he suddenly thinks, what did I do wrong? Is it all right? What did I do? He goes, what's the matter? What's the matter? I go, it's, hello? It's sad. And he goes, oh, yeah, I guess it is. Now you mention it. It's just totally different approach to things. Um, he, it wouldn't occur to him to actually respond emotionally to what he's watching. It just doesn't work that way. Whereas I can go through an airport and it's just a minefield because every hello, every goodbye I see makes me well up. Any touching thing, adverts, anything can set me off because I'm just very sensitive and I just feel things very deeply. So um, I am very much a heart person, which means that bit of my brain that responds emotionally is very well developed. I do have a brain as well, though. I can be logical, I can be rational, um, um, but I do just feel things very deeply. And in this session, we're going to be talking about how when we have these issues of the heart, um, things that have happened to us, how that can stop us responding to the invitation that Jesus gives us to come, to come in and join, join in with what he's doing. Because if you've been hurt, and all of us have been in one way or another, those things can hold us back even if we really want to say yes to Jesus and we want to step out of the boat and join him in what he's doing, these things can hold us back. And in order to stop these things having power over us, we have to learn to be overcomers. Overcomers in adversity, which is, it's not easy. It's hard work, but it can be done if we keep focused on two very important things. And the first one is we must remember and we must rehearse the fact that God is good even when our circumstances aren't. God does not bring the adversity into our lives ever. The things that are hard, the things that are painful are a result of the fall back at the beginning. Satan came and he twisted God's word then and it's a trick he's still using today. And when Adam and Eve fell for it in the garden, they gave the enemy an, an open door to come in to attempt to steal, to kill and destroy anything good and of God in the world. Um, and that, yeah, Paul's reminding me, he's got a little clicker thing, there should be a, a picture, but it doesn't matter. Um, now Satan is still at it. He, and he can be very effective at bringing destruction to people's lives. He's the one responsible for bringing in the pain, not God. God is always good. As Paul said, he's always better than we can imagine. And he's always working to reverse the damage that's done by Satan. And that leads me to the second thing, which is that because God is good, and because he is always working to reverse the damage done by Satan, he can redeem any situation, and he can bring something positive out of it. As we know, Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
Now, I know it can seem impossible to believe at times, but God can and he will, if we allow him, bring something positive out of even the most negative situation. Now, remembering that God is good and that he can bring good out of any situation, when we bring him into it, that helps us to persevere and it helps us to overcome adversity. And we also need to keep in mind the big picture. The Apostle Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 4, and he says, Therefore, we do not lose hearts. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, you may hear that and you may say, well, that's all very well. I like, I like you know, it sounds good, but my troubles don't feel light, my troubles don't feel momentary. And if that's what you're saying to yourself, well, I know how that feels, and I'll tell you a bit about my story. I also grew up uh, going to church. My family, I come from St. Louis in the middle of the USA. Uh, my parents were Christians. I grew up going to a Southern Baptist church there every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, and every Wednesday evening. Um, and it was a very different sort of church to the one Paul grew up in. So I was taught from as soon as I could read to, to memorize scripture and to read my Bible. I was taught as soon as I could to ask Jesus to live in my heart. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for that. It was the kind of church that, um, that we would have Bible drills. So in Sunday school, we would stand um, across the room, a line of about four or five of us. We'd have our Bible under our, you know, here all ready to go, and then the teacher would say a reference like Galatians 3.2, and we'd all have to turn, and whoever found, the, found it first, oh, I got it, I got it, and then you'd read it out, and then you'd get a gold star, that sort of thing. So um, we did Bible drills, to, I taught to memorize the books of the Bible, the order of them, so I did that very early on. Taught to memorize scripture, you'd go home, take a verse, come back the next week, and then if you could recite it, it's good for people with good memories, then again, you got a gold star. So I was taught to really know my Bible, to learn my Bible, to know Jesus died for me, to know that mission is important. And I, I prayed the prayer um, when I was four, when I was five, when I was six. I prayed it many times as I was going to bed just to make sure it stuck, I think. So I asked Jesus to live in my life at such an early age, and I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, so I, that was a very privileged upbringing in many ways. But my family also had quite a lot of tragedy. Um, if all my siblings were um, still alive, I'd have seven. But as it is, I only have an older sister. So my parents had three children who died, plus a stillbirth and a miscarriage. Um, and then my story is that um, well, I had a brother who died before I was born. He had um, epilepsy. He had a seizure in the night when he was 18 months, and my mother found him in the morning. He'd smothered. Um, then I had a sister who was born when I was two. She had meningitis uh, at six months. Um, she survived. She had viral meningitis. She survived, but was left completely brain damaged. The only thing she could do was swallow. So my memories from the ages, she survived three years. My memories from the ages of two to five, which was how old I was then, is just of her lying on the sofa. My mother had to care for her. Um, 24-7. I didn't know at the time, of course I was just a child, but my parents were in and out of hospital with her a lot and um, she just required a lot of care 
and couldn't really do anything. But at the age of three, her heart stopped, and this time it didn't start again. So for my parents, another grief. Um, I had another sister who was born when I was seven, um, and so um, she also had epilepsy, and she was... Uh, my parents experimented with a lot of medication. This was back in the 80s, and... Um, my memories, again, I was just a child, I was in school. I knew that sometimes some medicine made her hyper, some medicine made her really sleepy. Um, but, you know, my parents were dealing with all that stress and I was just getting on with my life. Now, when I was 13 and she was five one night, I was left home to look after her. And um, this was quite normal. My parents taught um, a Sunday school class for adults, which is what you do in America as well. And um, they'd gone one evening to go and um, say hello to a new couple who'd come on the Sunday morning to visit for the first time, and they left me in charge, which was very normal. But this night, unfortunately, there was an uh, accident. So uh, my sister Beth was taking a bath, and um, I was playing the piano, and because of her difficulty, she needed some help getting out, getting dressed. Um, but I was playing the piano at the time, and she'd called to me, and she said, Becky, I want to come out. And I said, all right, I'll be there in a few minutes. I just want to finish what I'm doing. But unfortunately, in that time, she'd had a seizure. So by the time I went to um, get her out, she'd had a seizure, and so when I opened the door, I found her floating face down in the water. So I was 13, you can imagine, I completely panicked. I pulled her out. She's totally unconscious. I called the emergency services. I just kept playing, please God, let her be alive. Please God, let her be alive. Please let her be alive. And um, the ambulance came. I got her dressed. I didn't know what to do. She was totally floppy. Um, and um, the ambulance, the paramedics came. And then my parents came home to all the flashing lights and everything. Um, they took her away, put her on a ventilator. But um, three days later, she died. So that was um, what happened to me when I was 13. So you can imagine for my parents, this is the third child they've lost, totally devastated. Uh, for me, as a 13-year-old, also totally devastated um, because I knew that if I'd gone to get her when she called me, she'd, you know, life would have just carried on. Now, the way I coped with that was to completely shut down. I just detached myself from what happened. Now, I didn't make a decision to do that. I just did it because um, I was just in shock, really. And so I went through the following days like, kind of like a uh, sleepwalking or a zombie. I was there, but I wasn't there. And I just went through the motions. Now, nobody asked me what had happened. They just could assume from um, that she'd had a seizure and I found her. Um, and, but we just went on as a family. We all, the rest of the family came and we had the funeral. Um, the hundreds of people there. Of course, the whole time, I mean, I really don't have any memories of it. I was kind of just completely shut down emotionally and mentally. So, but that happened, and then I just carried on with life. I went back to school. I never talked about it. I never, um, nobody asked me about it. Um, nobody, you know, at school, it just, was it just wasn't mentioned, and I never talked about it. So that's how I went through my teenage years. So I just um, buried this. And, um, and I tried to pretend like it never happened and that it had no effect on me. I just got on with life as best I could. Now, my faith in God was still very strong. Um, I'm very grateful for that because without it, I dread to think uh, what path I may have gone down. But, um, but I knew God was with me and was real. However, I also knew that he knew my secret. 
He knew she'd called and I didn't go. And so I was too embarrassed even to talk to him about that. I just tried to, I thought he must feel as disappointed in me as I felt in me. And so I just didn't go there with him or with myself or with anyone else. Now, the way that played out for me was I went, you know, carried on in school. I got good grades. I had lots of friends. Um, and and that, that was all fine. But I, inside, I was very, very broken. I'd completely detached from what had happened. I'd also had the experiences from two to five when my mother had to care for my sister all the time. So that also played into things um, of just being very resourceful, very self-sufficient, and getting on with things myself. Um, but I just carried on with life. So say, I carried on with my faith, um, but this, I tried to pretend like this had no effect on me, but of course, I was fooling myself. I had to say, you know, it's like the zombie movies. If you bury something alive, it doesn't stay there. It's going to keep coming back up. And you can try and bury it, but it's going to keep trying to come back up. And it will keep coming back up. And it will keep pursuing you until you've dealt with it. Now, for me, I just, um, I would have happily just carried on that way because I didn't want to face what had happened. Um, and I didn't want to talk about it or anything like that. Um, so I felt, I think, I look back now and I see that all through my teenage years, uh, the Lord was trying to get me to look at this with him, to free me from all the shame and the guilt that I felt. But I just didn't believe that about him. I didn't think, you know, as I say, I, I thought he thought about me the way I thought about me. And I knew that he died for me and all of that, but I didn't know about the resource of his presence to bring me healing and to set me free from my guilt and my shame. Um, so I like to think that he had to get me out of my context in order <laughs> to get my attention. So in 1990, I came to study um, in the UK, and I ended up um, living in Oxford where Paul was in his first year training for ministry. So that was life-changing in itself. So, um, but also at that same time as I came out, uh, I met um, a crazy guy who would just pray for anybody for anything. So what happened was um, one night I was waiting to make a phone call um, because it was 1990 and we had to use a phone box in order to make a phone call. So I was waiting my turn. I was standing, standing in sort of the lobby area and this guy named John walked by and he said, I'd met him a few days before. I'd only been there less than a week. And he said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, well, I was in a very minor car accident before I came and um, just somebody came in, uh, into the back of my car and so I have to deal with the insurance. I have to make an insurance call. And he said, oh, well, were you hurt? I said, well, not really. I have a bit of whiplash in my neck, but it's nothing serious. And he said, well, can I pray for you? And I was like, okay, that's very kind. Thank you. Of course you can pray for me. I was a good Christian girl. So, um, so I thought he was going to add me to his prayer list and pray for me before he went to bed because that's what the people in the church I grew up in did. If they, you know, We had very faithful praying for people. You'd have your list and you'd pray through your list. And, um, and that was that. Um, but he said, oh, I want to, uh, he said, okay, so when you finish a phone call, come find me and I'll pray for you. I said, oh, I have to be in the same room? You're not just going to add me to your list? Oh, okay. Well, this is, you know, I'm in a different country, so obviously they do it differently here. So I will go along with it. So I was like, okay. Um, so I made my phone call to the insurance company. Then I went and found him. And he said, right, I've been talking to God about you um, while I've been waiting. Well, I didn't know God could talk. I mean, I've been in church all my life. Nobody told me that. 
I knew I could talk to God, but I didn't know he talked back. I didn't know you could have a conversation. I was like, oh, okay. He said, he tells me you're converted. I said, well, thanks. That's good to know. Um, and that you know how to pray. And I said, oh, well, I felt quite affirmed by that. I didn't, you know, I said, oh, thanks, God. I didn't know you talked, but I'm glad that you do see me and you do know that I know how to pray. Um, so he's like, but anyway, so I don't have to go through the whole thing about Jesus with you because you know him already. Okay. And um, he said, so what we're going to do is we're going to um, ask the Holy Spirit to come. Now, you, and I'm going to ask him to come, and I'm going to ask him to heal your neck. And uh, so, because you know him, you ask him first, and then I'll join in. I was like, well, I've heard of the Holy Spirit, but we never, I don't know him. Um, so this was, a, again, a whole, I'd never been in church, I've been in church all my life. Never had anyone pray for me in this way before. So, but again, new country, I was up for, you know, okay, and I felt very safe. So I was like, okay, so let's, Okay, so he said, I want you to put out your hands like you're going to receive a gift. Then you ask the Holy Spirit to come, and then I'll add my prayers, and I'll just put my hand on the whiplash in your neck, and we'll see what happens. Okay, again, totally new to me, all of this. So I put my hands out. You know, we ask the Spirit to come. He prays the Spirit would come and heal my neck. And my neck begins to get really hot. And so this is a surprise to me. And so I was like, oh, it's, it's hot. Something's actually happening. And he's like, okay, that's good, that's good. That's a sign of healing. Okay, let's keep praying. So we keep praying. And then it was in this moment, and I look back and I can't explain why, but in this moment, a memory of my sister came up that for the first time I didn't immediately push back down. So a memory of my sister came up, not of the accident, just of her, and I started to cry very gently. This is the first time that I've allowed this to happen in seven years. And, um, and so John waited a minute, and he goes, okay. And it, it, just, it just didn't occur to me. You don't, before this, if any thought, anything, I would push it down, or I'd get out of the room if somebody started to talk about her or anything. I would just escape. But I just let it come, and I let it stay. It was just such a peace. It didn't occur to me not to. And so John said, so what's, what's happening now? And so I told him, I said, so I told him about... Um, that I'd had a sister and that she died in an accident when I was looking after her. Um, I didn't tell him that she'd called me. It was years before I could admit that to anybody. So, but I said, I told him about that and he said, you know, Becky, even if you'd done that on purpose, you'd still be forgiven. And I went, oh my gosh, you're right. You're right. I truly believe that about anybody else, about anybody else. If someone else did something in cold blood, they deliberately killed someone, but then they repented, they were sorry. God is the kind of God who would forgive because that's what he does. But I never believed that for myself, that for an accident, that I could be forgiven for what had happened, that I could be set free from that guilt. It just never occurred to me. That's what happens when we bury things. We never look at them, and so we can't see them from any other perspective but our brokenness. So I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And sometimes when I've told this story, um, people have said, wow, that's, that's a bit harsh thing for him to say, or that's not what I... But I'm just really, really grateful that he's the sort of person who was just listening to what God uh, was saying in the moment, because that's what I needed to hear. I didn't need to hear, oh dear, or that must have been hard. I needed to hear forgiveness spoken 
That's what I needed to hear to set me free. And so I described that moment in the book as when um, I'd built a huge defensive wall around myself. And that's what we do when we have things that happen that we don't ever want people to know about or we live in shame and guilt, is we build a defensive wall because we don't want people to get too close. Um, because if they do, they'll find out the truth. We don't do this logically. We don't do this rationally. It just is how we behave. And so I describe this as the first time that a wrecking ball came and hit my wall. It didn't take my wall down, but it cracked it and began, uh, made it possible to begin the dismantling process that happened over the next many years. That, I was 21 then, I'm 54 now, and it's been a long journey of healing and restoration for me to where now, I can stand and tell my story, whereas in the past, if you'd even brought up the word epilepsy, you'd brought up my sister's name, somebody named Beth, or even sometimes started talking about people taking a bath, I could feel panic begin to rise, and I would have to get out of the room or change the subject. That's how much control it had over me. And when I first started telling my story a little bit, and I would just begin to talk about my family had a bit of tragedy, I could feel I couldn't talk. I could feel the panic I can't talk about. To now where I have complete control over my story. It doesn't control me anymore. I control it. And that's all down to the healing that God has done in me as I've allowed him to touch me, to bring me healing, to let me, um, to look, to have the courage that he's given me to look at the things that have happened with him so that he can show me his perspective bring me his healing and redeem, bring the good out that I was talking about, bring the good out of what was a tragic situation, but bringing the good out of it that now I can go and as I share my story with people and point to the goodness of God in it, I just see so many people who are trapped like I was, who were trapped with the if onlys, if only I had gone when she called me, if only I had done this, if only I had done that, if only that hadn't happened to me. Um, if we get trapped and stuck there in this repetitive thinking um, that's really hard to break out of, but with the Lord's help, we can be set free from it. So as I um, shared that with you, I just want to talk about um, some of the experiences, some of the important lessons that I've learned from those experiences. And one of those, the first one, is just don't get stuck like I did. Don't get stuck in a place of suffering. Now, I know if I said, hey, would you like to come get stuck in suffering with me? Um, no one's going to go, yeah, sign me up. Um, but unfortunately, it's just so often what happens. And I think a really helpful way to look at this is in Psalm 84. Now, Psalm 84 is a great long psalm, um, but it talks about those who are, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And that's all of us, because we're all headed on a pilgrimage to our ultimate destiny with um, the Lord in heaven. We're on a journey through this life and our destination is eternity with him. And this psalm says in it, blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Now scholars um, agree that the valley of Baca means the valley of tears or the valley of weeping. So I'd like to read that again with um, that in mind. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. 
Now, the valley of weeping sounds a lot like a time of suffering to me. And according to this psalm, it's a place we all have to pass through on our way to appearing before God in Zion. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we in any way set up camp and decided to settle in the valley of weeping instead of passing through it? And if we have, why? Well, a big reason this happens to us is that I think we just can't see our way out of the valley. It stretches as far as we can see, and we lose hope that there's something better ahead. So we decide to stop where we are, stop trying. We just will hunker down, and we're not going to bother carrying on. And I think that this must have been a temptation for David in the years between being a shepherd and when he was uh, anointed king, and then the many years between before he was actually crowned king. In those in-between years, he was exiled, he was hunted, he was betrayed. Uh, he even had to, uh, he had to hide out in caves. He had to pretend to be insane in, at one point in order to stay alive. And this was a time of real hardship for David, and he could have given up on God. He could have become very bitter. Instead, we see throughout the Psalms that although he did have a good moan, very healthy to have a good moan from time to time with the Lord, David shows us that, um, but, he, but we have to continue to keep the faith. And we have to continue to determine to keep going with God. And Psalm 71, there's a great example where he says, Deliver me, God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel, because for you have been my hope. And he carries on like that. He talks, you know, he's very clear, he's very real with what he's going through. But he remembers, but you have been my hope. And he says, don't cast me away when I'm old. Don't forsake me when my strength is gone because my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue him for no one will rescue him. And then he cries out, but don't be far from me, my God. Come quickly, help me. Um, and he says, as for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. As for me, David says, I shall always have hope. And that's an incredible declaration. And because he did hold on to hope, David has become a sign to all succeeding generations down to us today of what of life, of worship, and intimacy with God can look like. David understood that God does not mean for us to do more than pass through this valley of weeping on our way to somewhere better. Um, I remember once that we had someone years and years ago um, on our staff, and he really struggled with depression, and he was on medication, and he'd been doing really well, and then he'd been in this great relationship, and he, he just knew the plans God had for him, you know, they were going to lead a church together, this and that, and then she broke up with him, and he was devastated, and I was praying about it, and I felt God give me a very strong picture for him. Um, that he had a choice to make. At the moment, he felt like he was in a really dark cave. And I felt God saying, you have the choice now. You can either just stay where you are and decide this is all there is, or you can just keep feeling your way forward. Just inch by inch, just keep feeling your way forward. And I can see that soon it opens up and you're going to come out into a spacious place. Now, I was a bit worried about giving this picture to him, but I, did, I, I had it really strongly, so I did. And I'm glad I did, because in that, um, in that time, we had someone coming on placement for just three weeks. And she was coming to see our church. She was going to train for ministry, and she, she'd come for then. And because um, this young man, he, he chose... Now, he, in the past, he would have just stayed at home. 
and hid himself away. But he chose to keep staying engaged, keep staying involved in what was happening, and because of that, he met this young lady who came for just three weeks, and now they are married in ministry with two children. And it just was a picture to me of how we need to keep our hearts open to hope. And that keeps us from getting stuck in suffering, because times of suffering are like this. When we go through something difficult in life, whatever it is, we get wounded, the same way a soldier is on the battlefield. Now, some wounds soldiers pick up are more serious than others. Some take longer to heal than others. But those that aren't mortal, that don't kill outright, should be treated so that no infection can take hold and so that he or she is given the best chance to fully recover. And that's like the wounds we receive because we're in a spiritual battle. And when we're wounded emotionally, mentally, or spiritually, and often all three happen at once, we need to guard that we don't pick up an infection that can spread from the wound to the healthy places. An infection like unforgiveness, uh, letting a bit of bitterness grow, um, picking up a sense of rejection, shame, self-pity, all those things are these infections I'm talking about. And even if we're careful not to allow infection to spread, we also need to do what's necessary to allow healing to take place by not denying we're wounded on one hand, which is what I did for many years, or on the other hand, by not continually wallowing in the wound, inspecting it, you know, metaphorically picking the scabs off as it starts to heal. Um, and that means we need to move beyond our disappointments and we need to get reappointed. Now, you will know there are many ways that disappointment can enter our lives. Many ways, relationship breakdown, abuse, illness, our own or someone else's. It can come through sudden tragedy, through loss of employment, bereavement, even just unmet expectations. I thought my life was gonna look like this, but actually, it looks like this. And these things, they're common to all of us. In fact, Jesus promised us in John 16. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. These struggles are a part of life, and if we don't move on from them, we can get stuck in a place of disappointment, which leads to a place of discouragement, which then can lead to a place of depression, which then can lead us into a place of despair, that getting stuck in suffering. But the good news is, with the promise of trouble, Jesus also carried on with an instruction. And he said, take hearts, or I like to think he said, cheer, but cheer up, because I've overcome the world. God's always wanting to meet us in our place of disappointment and reappoint us. He's always willing to comfort us and to give us fresh vision and hope. But we have to be willing to face the pain and make the journey with him. And that means we cannot blame God when things go wrong in our lives. We have to get over the betrayal barrier where God is concerned. And R.T. Kendall, the great Christian teacher, said, all Christians experience disappointment, but 90% never get over the betrayal barrier. And what he means by that is we find it hard to move on when we feel God has let us down. And if we won't allow ourselves to think that way about God, we find it hard to move on when life hasn't lived up to our expectations. But if we're Christians and we believe God is in control of our lives, we will most likely hold him responsible for where we feel our life has gone wrong, whether we acknowledge that or not. And that's where the betrayal barrier comes in. Uh, Mercy Ministries put it really well like this. If you see God as the reason for your pain, you're never going to let him be your resource for your healing. So we need to get that right. God is good. 
and he is not the author of the pain in our lives. Now, for Paul and myself, having children with special needs has been a real challenge um, and another chance for me to overcome the betrayal barrier in several different ways. We have two children, both adult now. Our son Joshua is 23, but he um, has uh, very low-functioning autism. So he doesn't speak. He um, you know, needs his teeth brushed. He can do it, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get it. What the, what's the point? You know, he needs help staying dressed. He needs, um, he needs to be shaved. He has to have his fingernails cut. He has to have his hair washed. So all these things have to be done for him. Um, and our daughter, Rachel, who's 21, she's very high-functioning autistic. So she's um, doing well at university in her final year, but she's never had a friend. So things like that. Now, um, for us, that's, we've had to learn a lot. Um, about, we, we talk about healing, we trust God for healing, we teach on healing, and yet not seeing what we want, the healing we want to see in our own family. Um, but we know God is good and we know he does these things, so we keep holding that out. We don't let our experience lower our expectation of what God can do, but we trust him in these things. But I say that on the other side of quite a wrestling time I had with the Lord about this. Um, first of all, I realized I had a lot of unmet expectations. Now, I never thought I'd be the kind of mom, you know, when I was younger, I'd say, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a really cool mom. I'm not going to have expectations on my children. I'm not going to say they have to do this or that or give me grandchildren. I'm just going to let them find their path. As long as they, you know, I'm going to really pray for them to know the Lord because then they'll have peace in life and I know he will guide them. But I'm not going to, you know, tell them what they have to do. However, I didn't realize, I had loads of expectations. And I didn't realize that until Joshua got to the age of two and he still hadn't started speaking. And now he's 23 and he still hasn't started speaking. But I thought that my children would be, I just assumed I'd have children who'd be able to speak. I assumed my children would be able to read and write. I assumed my children would have friends. But with um, Rachel, we've never had the friends. With Joshua, we've never had the friends or the speaking or the reading or writing. And I realized I had to let go of and grieve um, those things that just hadn't happened as I thought they would happen. And I had to learn to accept and to celebrate what we did have. And that is not always an easy journey to go through in life. Um, but God is very faithful, and he's provided help and support along the way, and he's helped us to grow stronger through it, definitely. And, you know, studying Job really helped me with that because Job was a good man, um, the best man, it says, the most righteous man in the East, it said, um, but everything was taken from him. And in all of that, Job never blamed God. He never said, God, this has happened to me, so you are therefore bad. He complained, he moaned, he questioned, but he still said, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as I read through Job years ago, this almost really challenged me because it says Job did not sin in what he said. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I have sinned a lot in what I've said because I've said a lot of negative things to and about God <laughs> because of what, because of the situation. Like, God, where were you? Why did we bother to pray when we were, you know, what about all this stuff we do for you? You know, all of these things. And I don't mind, I'm not ashamed to tell you because I know I'm just human. We all are. And so we all have to wrestle with these things when life doesn't turn out the way we thought it should. But we wrestle with it, we come to it, and we search the scriptures, and we spend time with the Lord, and we let others pray for us and speak into our lives. And through that, just recognize that actually, Lord, 
Okay, I have three conclusions I can draw from this. One, you don't exist. I don't want to go there because I need you. <laughs> and I know you too well to know, think you don't exist. <laughs> Secondly, you do exist, but you're not actually that good. Or you're just good some of the time. Or you're good to other people. You know, it's random. And that's probably where I was for a while. And because of my other background experience, you know, I just had a big blockage there because I was so shut down. But then I realized, no, actually, then I've come to the place where I saying, actually, God is good all the time. And just because my circumstances aren't what I would choose doesn't change who he is. And he is actually the resource for my healing. He's the resource for my strength. He's the resource for my life, for my joy, for my peace. Without him, I don't have that. But with him, I do. And so he is good. And so I, I've wrestled with that, like Jacob wrestled with um, the Lord. And um, I wrestled with it and come to this decision that, yeah, God is good. And yeah, circumstances are how I'd like them to be. Um, you know, and I've had to come to terms with the fact that though we believe in healing and we teach on healing and we know God can do amazing things and I've seen it, I may never be able to have a conversation with my son till we get to heaven. And I just have to make my peace with that and know that that is a tension we live with in this life. We see the kingdom breaking in. We see amazing things happen. However, it could happen tomorrow as well. So we live with that tension. It could happen tomorrow, or it may not happen till heaven, but I'm going to keep believing, I'm going to keep praying, and I'm going to keep seeking after what the Lord has. But that is a, that's a, um, it can be a tiring place to be, and that's why we need to keep coming to the Lord, letting him refresh us, reminding ourselves of who he is and how good he is. And as we do that, he just shows us more and more about himself. Um, and it means we need to keep praising him, even when it doesn't feel good. And through this, um, by di disciplining myself to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I, I often tell the story, Joshua moved out in July, so this is a new phase of life for us. He now lives in supported living, so we see him you know, every week, but he's not living with us, um, so it's not the same sort of demanding care for him 24-7 as it was. Um, but, but I always told the story that with Joshua, the biggest issue for him was um, toileting, and I won't go into details, but anyway, we spent a lot of time cleaning the walls and the floor. A lot of, I mean, wipe, we'd gone through thousands and thousands of wipes. Um, and I would, used to just clean the wall, and I'd go, oh God, how much longer? Lord, you know I've prayed about this so many times, when is this gonna stop? And then that's what I would always do, and you feel more and more depressed more and more depressed every time. But then I thought, okay, I'm going to change my tactic and I'm going to start singing, blessed be the name of the Lord when I clean the walls. So I started singing, blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, and, um, and, and it's great because, and because I say it publicly, I, I had to do it then. And so when I no, blessed be the name, and I do it. And then I would, um, and then, and then at the end, I didn't feel so sad or depressed or upset about it. It was like, it was fine. Um, and, um, and just knowing that it's the right thing to do. But I always say the only problem is now when we sing that song, that's what I associate it with. That's my association. So that's the downside of praising when things are hard, you know, but no, it's good. It's the same idea as I raise a hallelujah, but that came along later. Um, so anyway, um, but by doing this, I've become much stronger, much more resilient, and much more able to see actually where the Lord's moving. And I had a dream once um, 
that Paul and I were, um, what had happened was it was the night before Easter, and this is probably about 12 years or so ago, and it was the night before Easter, and Joshua uh, had lots of, he didn't sleep very well, even though he's on medication for it, and he, would ju- he loves to jump. So this is the night before Easter, he was in his room, um, he was jumping, 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 really loud, um, and I kept praying, God, please, God, you know tomorrow's Easter, right? Like, you know tomorrow's Easter. And tomorrow's like a big day in church, so everybody's going to be there. Pastor preached three times. He's going to be tired, and this always seems to happen on Saturday nights, but, you know, Easter's like the one time a year when everybody comes. So um, could you please make him go to sleep, please? And it just wasn't working. And I was getting more and more fed up, and I thought, okay, time, time, again, time to change tactic. Right, I'm going to just start singing. This is what I'm this is before I started doing it with the wall, so this is my first time. I'm going to start singing, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, instead. I'm just going to start worshiping God. And um, I'll just try it and see what happens. Um, so I started that going through my head. As I say, I was in church a lot, so I knew all the words. Um, and so I was going through it. And about the second time through, um, I fell asleep. So everything had gone quiet. And I... Um, woke up, when, and then I had this dream. And in this dream, Paul and I were in this little pedal boat next to each other, pedaling in this lake, or I don't know, in a big thing of water. Uh, but in the water were pirates, and I felt really scared of the pirates, but I knew as long as we were in the boat, we were safe. But if we got into the water, then, the, then we were free game for the pirates, but, so we had to stay in the boat. And that's fine, we're pedaling along side by side in the boat. We were safe because we were in the boat. Uh, but then we spring a leak and we start, water starts coming in and I shut it up, oh, what's it for you? So we had to start bailing the water out. And as we're bailing the water, I hear in my dream, I'm American. So it's like the cavalry were coming in the Wild West. So and then I woke up and I was like, oh, that was such a vivid dream. I really heard that and I knew we were saved. Uh, well, and then I, then I thought, oh, and then I remembered what had happened before I fell asleep, that I'd just chosen to, do, to, to worship instead of beg God to change the situation. And then I started putting together that with the dream, okay, we're here, and as long as we in the boat, we're safe. Um, but if we get into the water, then we're fair game for the pirates. But then we sprung this leak, and then I started putting it together and thinking, ah, okay, so we had to bail ourselves out. And sometimes when you're choosing to worship and you don't feel like it, it's like bailing out. It's just hard work. You think, oh, this is hard work. I don't really want to do this, but I have to. This is really hard work. Um, So, but but the the worshiping, putting the two together, okay, so that's bailing in my dream, and it was key because I knew we were sinking. And I think sinking is what I was doing before as I was begging God and nothing was changing and I was getting angry and upset and resentful that nothing was changing. That was making me get closer and closer to the pirates in the water. But as we instead chose to worship, that made space for the cavalry to come, for God to come in. And so worship is, um, is our greatest spiritual battle, really, spiritual warfare. Because um, when we choose to worship, even when we don't feel like it, it allows God to move. But when we're begging him for, and nothing's changing and we're getting angry and then our faith levels drop because we're not seeing what we want to see, then that um, just blocks what God wants to do because we're getting you know, like that. But when we worship him, actually it allows him to move. And Rachel had a picture um, during the worship this morning about when we worship, she saw a shriveled plant. But as we worship, that 
God was coming and he was bringing the life back and the green was coming back and the flowers were starting to bloom and, and um, life was coming back to the plant. And that's what we're like as we worship. Um, even when it's a choice, we're, but we're choosing to say, God, you've got this. You are God. I'm not. Um, you're in charge. You know, we're just choosing to look to him. Um, that gives him space to move. And then he can come in and he can do what only he can do. And um, I'm just going to finish with an image that God showed me about myself and a work of restoration, the work of restoration he's been doing to me, in me. And it, this happened um, uh, when I was being prayed for at New Wine United um, about, about five or six years ago. And during the time of ministry, I had a really powerful encounter with the Lord. And I didn't know what he was doing, but as Paul was saying earlier, you know, it's just not our job to understand it, it's our job to welcome what the Lord's doing. Um, so he was, I could tell he was really working deeply, and I know to give him permission to do what he wants, because it will be good no matter what happens in the moment, whether I'm not feeling anything, or I'm feeling joy, or I'm feeling um, crying, I know I'll be better for it after. And in this encounter, the person praying for me just felt caught. She said, I just need to pray for you. And she, I didn't hear anything she said. Um, I, she just prayed for me, and I could hear her speaking in tongues under her voice. But, um, so she, she didn't really speak. She just let God do what needed to be done. Um, and as she did that, as is a really powerful encounter, and as I said, I, I, um, I know not to demand understanding, but I just say thank you, God, for what you're doing. And but sometimes I did ask him, and I did in this situation, I said, is there anything you want me to understand? From what? I don't have to, but if there's something you want to show me about what you're doing, then I'm open to receive that, to hear that. And I felt him say, I heard him say very clearly, um, and he uh, sounds weird, but he said, Becky, I'm sewing your arms back on. That's what he said in that moment. And then I remembered a few other instances over the previous years when God had showed me through a physical picture what he was doing in me spiritually. And the first time again was at New Wine, probably uh, about five years before that. After a full week of worship and being in his presence, I heard God say to me, and I know I could say I sound a bit like Frankenstein's monster, but he said, this last week I've been taking off the duct tape, I've been taking off the tape that, you, that was um, holding the two halves of your brain together. So this week I've removed that. And then another time in a, a day on the ministry of the Spirit, after allowing the Spirit to work on me, I felt he told me, I've been doing surgery on your intestine. I've stitched up half of a very long wound, and that's enough for now. That needs to heal before we can carry on. So those had happened before, and then I had this word about sewing my arms back on. And after he said that to me, Becky, I'm sewing your arms back on, he carried on then to tell me that um, it was like I'd stepped on a landmine when my sister died, and I had been blown apart spiritually. But since that time, once I began allowing him, he was restoring me bit by bit. Now, for many years, as I said, I didn't allow him to touch that part of my life because I couldn't face it. But then I saw that in those years when he told me about the tape coming off, I could understand that I had detached myself and I was held together. You know, I like sort of was doing my own botch job to hold myself together. But he was saying he had reintegrated the part of me I had detached from um, and, and the part of me I denied in order to cope. 
The tape represented my attempt to hold myself together, but only God could reconnect and restore the two parts of myself into one. And when he did that, I was finally able to fully accept myself, accept what happened, and I could be renewed, and then I could receive his gift of hope once I was able to accept what had happened and see it from his perspective, which I couldn't do when I refused to acknowledge it. And I could begin in my head to hear him speak his redemption into the situation, and I could begin to believe it and agree with it. Now, when he was doing surgery on my intestines, I believe he was closing up the wound in me that meant though I knew God was that I knew God and I was open to his spirit, I quickly lost the effects of his filling, the spiritual nourishment he was giving me. I'd spend time in his presence, I'd receive his peace, his joy, but the trauma I'd experienced and then the guilt and the shame I'd lived with had wounded me in a way that meant I found it hard to retain, to hold on to the good things, that love, that joy, that peace that God filled me with when I allowed him to. But by stitching up this wound, as I spent time in his presence and allowed him to work in me, God was healing me so I wouldn't so quickly lose the effects of the good works, his good works in my life. So once he'd done work on my mind and he'd done work on my most inner being, I was ready to have my arms sewn back. He restored my thinking, he restored my spirit, and then he restored my ability to give and to take from, uh, from others, to give and to receive. Now I know that God is still restoring me. I like to say I haven't heard anything about my legs yet. Um, but then, you know, I'm still getting used to using my arms and getting used to these other bits. Um, and I've needed time to, to adjust and to grow into that. So just as we finish this morning before lunch, um, I wonder what work of, the work of restoration the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Where is he wanting you to, um, to oh, where is he wanting to help you overcome adversity in your life? Um, now, I've told you my story. My story, of course, is unique to me. However, as I go around and I talk to people, I find it's not actually that unique in terms of um, we all have a story. We all have things that have happened to us in life. We live in a fallen world. Things happen. We get hurt. That's just in this world you will have trouble. So we all have these things that have come and have wounded our hearts, our emotions, made us believe lies about ourselves. Um, made us um, see ourselves not the way God sees us. For many years, I knew the Lord was telling me, um, I want you to lead with Paul. I want you to stand alongside him and, and do ministry with him, but I refused to. I didn't want people looking at me. Um, I didn't want to be responsible. I didn't, I didn't want any of that. And when I really prayed about it and sought the Lord about it, I realized that was because when I was left responsible, when I was 13, a tragedy happened. Now again, logically, I didn't think that, but emotionally, that's how, I, that's how I reacted, and that's what we're like. We're just recorders of what happens to us. But, but that doesn't have to be the final word, because as the Lord comes in and he brings his healing and his restoration, he sets us free, he restores his image in us more and more, so we can become who he created us to be. And whatever comes against us in this world, whatever arrows Satan fling, um, shoots at us, whatever damage comes, whatever mistakes we make ourselves, nothing's outside the Lord's power to heal and redeem as we bring it to him and we let him work and we do the hard work of um, being brave and facing things with him and letting him speak and heal him, uh, bring his, his restoration. Um, often what we consider our mess becomes a message of hope to others.
So we'll just leave a little space now for the Lord to just do what he wants to do. Um, now I always say, when I, if I was sitting where you are in the past, I would have run out now. I'd have found some reason to get out of the room because I did not want the Lord touching my broken places. Um, I didn't think, it, again, I didn't think it that way. It was just, a, just my reaction. But now, I love it when the Lord comes because um, I've, I've allowed him to, to deal with my pain. But the point is, he's not going to do a huge surgery right now. <laughs> now it's just a time for a little, like, uh, a little tending. Um, I had a picture earlier of Jesus coming like a shepherd. And he comes to his sheep, and he sees where they have little nicks or cuts or where they need to be cleaned up, and he comes as a good shepherd, and he comes and he tends to his flock that he loves. Um, and so that's really all we have time for now. Um, but if the Lord is highlighting something for you or you think this, there is a wound here that um, I would love to be free of, but I don't know how, then be brave and tell someone and just be determined to pursue that to not just leave it behind, you know, not to just go back to how things were, but to actually um, pray about who to talk to, talk to someone, um, talk to me, talk to leaders here. Um, but um, just make a date with the Lord. I'm going to deal with this. Um, and that's what we'll do now. Um, that's what you can do now if you've got a deep thing. But for all of us, the Lord's just always wanting to come, you know, I just say sometimes, you know, I had a deep wound that required major surgery over many years. But sometimes we just fall down and graze our knee. Uh, you know, sometimes something's just bad has happened and we've messed up and we just need the Lord to tend to us and just to give it to him and say we're sorry, things like that. So we'll have that time now. So if I can ask you to stand, you've done brilliantly. Thank you for listening so well, because um, I've been talking a lot. And we'll just leave a bit of space and peace um, just for you and the Lord. Uh, Rachel again had a picture earlier. I had the picture of Jesus as a shepherd, and she also had one of Jesus as a lion patrolling, protecting uh, the flock, guarding the flock. So we know Jesus does both. So Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here. Thank you we can trust you, that you come um, with the spirit of Jesus as the good shepherd who comes and tends to his much-loved flock. And also we can trust you to be protecting and patrolling our borders. So just take this opportunity to just um, close your eyes, just, you know, if it helps you to hold out your hands to be open say, I come with, um, I just ask you to come and fill me, Lord, or I want to give this to you. He'll be doing something different with each one. And I'm just get, getting the words, uh, what I needed to hear, and what the Lord said to me for a long time was, it's, it's not your fault. Um, and people would often say that as they prayed for me, and they'd say, I don't know what that means. And I'd say, me neither, but I was lying, of course. Um, I thought God's just being nice. He doesn't mean it. But I just feel someone here needs to know it's not your fault. You've been carrying a lot of guilt. 
and the Lord wants to live that off. And Jesus, we thank you for the cross that paid once and for all. For any guilt we feel, any, any guilt we carry, anything we've done wrong, your cross paid the price. And as we look to you, your forgiveness, your freedom is available. So we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, for those carrying false guilt, guilt the enemy would keep them carrying. Just pray, Lord, for you to just come and um, reveal that, help them to take it off, to stop carrying it. I pray for the lies that are believed because of things that have happened power of those lies to be broken, to be replaced with truth. So we just give you permission to come and to just clean us, tend to us. Um, we're sorry, Lord, where we've held you responsible and blamed you. Sinned in that way, speaking um, things about you that aren't true. And if you can relate to that as I did, then just tell him you're sorry. and then receive your forgiveness. And I just see the picture of Jesus as the shepherd coming to some ears and where there's been little parasites or bugs or things that have uh, taken up um, residence there. He just wants to come and cleanse and just bring his, um, clean, his cleansing there. So any lies, anything that's been picked up, anything of the world or the enemy that's tried to stop you from hearing the shepherd's voice. the anointing oil of your spirit to, to cleanse. And just another image that's sometimes helpful that was shared with me was that sometimes when things happen in life um, or those things we've done, then it's like holding a piece of broken glass in our hand and we clutch it, feel it's our duty to carry it. But actually the Lord's saying, open your hand, let me take that from you. It's not for you to carry. Let me take it from you. 
something broken and then let me come and bring my healing to the pain and the hurts and the, the wounds. thought or memory in this space and that's um, that's fine just let, let that come um, sometimes as it comes up that does people do connect with the emotion um, I just felt as well that we had a couple of words about the shepherd the good shepherd and as we were waiting on God a minute ago um, I felt that God wanted uh, a number of us to be more confident that he is protector provider and the, the image I had actually was, um, actually I saw a robin, um, just a little, the little bird. Um, but when I asked God about it, actually he started speaking to me about sparrows. So it's, it's the sparrow that he provides for. Um, and just in talking to God about that, I just felt um, there are a number of us that the circumstances we, we've been through mean that it's hard, to us, far, hard for us to trust God for protection and provision. But even a sparrow has its home and the Lord looks after the birds of the air and you are far, far more important than even the sparrows. Uh, so some of you will probably you will be able to connect to that, that there might be situations. I was reminded of, of my mother, her father died when she was very young, so she was brought up by her mother but in a family that had quite a lot of poverty. And um, she always found it difficult to trust God as the shepherd, the protector, provider. Uh, it just, I just think there'll be people here today as well that you'll be able to look back. It wasn't even something that happened to you, but it was the circumstance in your life through maybe family breakup or bereavement or um, economic difficulty. But the Lord's um, wanting to take you back and say, you made a... You almost came to an understanding in your mind that life was going to be difficult and that you would sometimes or often struggle um, financially even. So, Lord, I want to thank you that you are the good shepherd. And wherever that foundation of trust has been damaged, um, we want to uh, just release here the faith that we are far more important, far more special, worth far more, than the birds and you look after them. So I pray, Lord, that you'd release faith that you are a protector provider in those who've been damaged in that area. That might just be one of a number of um, judgments that people have made as a result of their circumstances or their experiences.